Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Today, we're going to be talking um, about project care, which is a study that affects our stress and trying to figure out what is triggering our our body and how to control that and so forth. But before I introduce our guest today, um, I always like to give uh, some shout outs and welcome people to the show. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have a real conversation, so we have up to an hour to chat with our guests, and we like to talk to people who are in the trenches. That means those living with the disease, those caring and serving them, as well as researchers and people who have developed products and services um, and so forth, uh, and advocates. And speaking of advocacy, it is World Alzheimer's Month, and on September 21st, um, the uh, world, there's going to be a report um, that is launched. So watch for that. I'll be pushing that out. That'll be on the 21st. And I'm really excited to to learn more about that. It's all about the journey of getting diagnosed for dementia, which is a difficult one for most people. Also, if you liked our opening song, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. And you can download that on any of your favorite platforms. I'm going to do a few shout-outs. Um, one is to um, Arthur's Senior Care. We do a memory cafe the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. Central Time. That is virtual, and anybody around the world is welcome to join us. And then I also work with uh, Brookdale North Oaks here in Minnesota, and we have a kind of a caregiver connect um program, and that is the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 11 at the Shoreview Parks and Recs uh, Center, and uh, you are more than welcome to to come to that. Next week, I will also be doing a presentation for Maple Hill uh, Senior Living, and that is going to be talking about dementia around the world, perception, stigma, services, and movements, and more which is so in line, again, with World Alzheimer's Month. And that'll be from 8 to 9 a.m. September 15th, and that is going to be a hybrid session, so it'll be virtual and in person. What else do I have for you? Um, Let's see, November 2nd, the Together for Dementia, which is a conference uh, that is um, being represented by the dementia research charity BRACE. And uh, you can participate with that. That's going to be online as well. You can find information on all of these on alzheimerspeaks.com. And let's see, I also want to mention uh, the program Brain Donor Project. I think this is really critical. 
if we're going to find a cure, we need brains to uh, for those researchers to look at both healthy and those that are diseased. So you can just go to braindonorproject.org for more information on that. And let's see, I also have to mention the um, uh, dementia map, which has about 150 different categories. You can come and search. It's free. You don't have to register or remember a password. If you have a service product or tool you are interested in uh, getting um, online, feel free to reach out to me or you can just go to DementiaMap.com. It's very easy to use. There's also a calendar of events, a glossary, and a blog with some great information there. So check out DementiaMap.com. We're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and then we will be right back with our guest. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. If you aren't familiar with the Footbar Walker, I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, I actually interviewed Peggy and the developers of this walker, and it is absolutely fabulous. It really reduces um, injuries in terms of lifting somebody and hurting their shoulder or back, as well as the care partner who's trying to get somebody up. It's quite amazing and um, very well designed. So check out the Foot Bar Walker um, and see what you think. And don't forget to spread the word. Now, today we are going to be talking um, about project care and the effects of stress. And our guest is Ryan Lynn Brown, and she's a fifth-year PhD student in um, psychological science at Rice University and a passionate science communicator. Her research focuses on biological uh, mechanisms through which the psychological stress, like bereavement, family caregiving, disrupts our immune system, our autonomatic, and our endocrine functions. And so I am just thrilled to uh, to have uh, Ryan with us today. So Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing well and so happy to be here with you. Well, I am thrilled to have you on the show. I think this is a really important topic and one that people overlook so often. But before we dive into um, our line of questions, I always ask everybody who's on the show if they've been personally touched by dementia um, in their own family or circle of friends. Yeah, and I and I really appreciate that. That is such an intentional question. Um, my experience was a minimal with my grandmother um, as right towards the end of her life, um, but more of my experience 
rather than focus on dementia specifically, has been more on the um, experience of caregiving and how that affects a family system. So we, we were family caregivers for my father for about a decade. And so that's where a lot of my motivation and passion for this kind of work comes from is just seeing the changes that occur in a family system when you have someone whose health problems you really need to rally around and support. Uh, so that that's where a lot of my motivation comes from is those personal experiences. So I, I appreciate that question. Well, and what I find is so many people who are doing great things in this space have had personal experience, and that has drawn them in uh, to try to find out some answers and try to make the, the the journey a little bit easier. Why don't we start first with what exactly is uh, the Project Care Study, and how did it come about? Absolutely. So Project Care came about right around the time of the start of the pandemic, and being that we in our lab were already sort of studying spousal caregiving for patients with dementia, Alzheimer's, or any related dementias. And so we immediately sort of, we can, we've continued with that work, which is in-person research in Houston. But, but at the start of the pandemic, we wanted to extend it to be more nationwide and to really understand the specific changes within any given day in a caregiver's emotional experience and how that relates to their own mental health, their own physical health, and their confidence in their ability to care for that family member with Alzheimer's or dementia. And that was the primary motivator for the study itself. And now we've just been adapting it to the changing context of the pandemic and and updating based on different recommendations as we as we just learned more. So I think that this study is really unique because of the context and the sort of evolution of it as we just learn more as a country and as uh, across the world about the pandemic and about this context. So we're really passionate about understanding the day-to-day, hour-to-hour experiences of caregivers and understanding when those particularly negative emotions, maybe related to loneliness or feeling isolated, um, especially in the context of the pandemic, are really affecting health so that we can help and better understand how we can intervene in the future for people who are caregiving for a family member with Alzheimer's or dementia. Well, I think this is so important. We've heard more about the isolation and the loneliness for the person with dementia. Um, but we haven't heard as much about the, the care partners, the family members, and what they're mm-hmm. going through and and how that um, affects them. And, I, you know, one of the things that I have found, and I know your study is kind of focused on dementia, but what I have found is pretty much anything that's good for dementia is good for any part of your life. Um, have you have you seen overlap, or have you just not gone there in terms of other other fields of care um, and stress factors that that people are feeling? Yeah, the the other context that we study most um, the most in our lab is spousal bereavement. So after the so the year after the death of a spouse, which does pair well with this kind of research around sort of the cognitive decline that you would experience if, if it is a spouse or just a close family member um, and the the loss that, that is inherent in that experience. 
And so I think that it's a, a sort of nice extension because we started off doing more bereavement work, but then kind of wanting to take a step back and say, what are, what's the context around um, this time before, before the loss of this important person to your family and your family system to really come back to what are the experiences, especially in this most stressful context of caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia and across different stages of the diseases as well. So bereavement was the other context that we're really interested in understanding how different stress and emotion and relational factors affect how we respond to to this major life change and stress. Well, and and I agree with you there. In fact, um, our group in Rollersville actually started a, a, another kind of support group that we call the reentry program for people who have mm-hmm. lost a loved one because it is so significant and people are like, Absolutely. what do I, what do I do now? Who am I? You know, it's just nothing, nothing is the same. And um, that's been quite popular and it's, it's been dementia specific and, um, mm-hmm. And it kind of follows the mode of a of a memory cafe um, in some ways, where it's kind of loose in its focus and letting people be who they are and where they are at the moment, and and building mm-hmm. a sense of sense of community versus kind of a, a grief um, counseling, you know, as a whole. But Absolutely. there's just, yeah, there's just so much loss. So I I do I I just believe there's so much. Um, overlap with with all of this that people need to look at closely. And I think COVID really brought that out. I I don't think people would have been worried so much about isolation and um, loneliness if they themselves weren't affected by it. And then it kind of rolled over to see, oh, people who are Mm -hmm. ill um, are probably dealing with this on even a, a, a more difficult level. Uh, you know, a more intense level than than what I am, and um, and and so I kind of I see it as a as a gift wrapped in a weird package. This COVID thing, I think we've learned a lot, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more we can learn from it. How do you think your research mm-hmm. is going to be able to help family um, care partners in the future? Absolutely, that's that's such a great question because. This, this work is really trying to establish sort of the baseline of what is happening. In, and the, the study is over the course of three months. So we're doing it over an extended period of time. But the way that we approach the question is with within about a week out of each of those months, we get a lot of information about the hour-to-hour, day-to-day changes uh, uh, that a person is experiencing. So by doing those more sort of fine-grained, multiple Um, sets of questions throughout the day. The goal is to really understand what would be the ideal timing and and mode of intervention to be able to help support these care partners. And both in the goal of caring for, for these people, but also in the goal of protecting your own mental health while you're in this position of, of supporting another person like this. Mm hmm. So when you say kind of hour to hour, day to day, are they logging constantly on where they are emotionally with things, or or is it a yeah, summary of like once a month that they're doing? Great question. Yeah. So one of the really unique pieces of this study is that um, we have sort of 
multiple questionnaires throughout an individual day. And when I say that, it, that can sound really intimidating. And what that means is just that people who participate would get texts or emails, depending on their preference, to complete a brief survey that would take about a minute um, multiple times throughout the day. And in that kind of a survey, you'd be answering what emotions you're experiencing at that moment and the severity of those emotions. So that ultimately we are able to sort of understand the fluctuations in emotions throughout a day, as well as when they maybe correspond to other physical health parameters more. So thinking, I'm, this is, I'm just throwing this out here, this isn't something we're trying to test or anything like that, but you could imagine some people might be interested in just the, the timing of the day impacting things, right? Maybe you just have more resources to deal with negative emotions in the morning versus the evening. So by, by really assessing throughout the day and throughout multiple days and a little bit over time with that um, one week out of each month for three months, we hope to have a more detailed picture that we can then go and say, okay, well, this is really when it would make the biggest impact to be able to help this person. Maybe in, in the scenario where, where, that I'm saying where maybe it's um, that mornings you just have more resources to cope with, with a negative emotion. So potentially intervening at this afternoon time or an evening time would be the sort of buffer to carry you through to the next day when you then can have those resources. And, mm -hmm. and it's not specifically just focused on resources to cope, but I think as well on when are you most likely to feel isolated and lonely and potentially make different um, health risk decisions in terms of um, socializing with people and things like that. that. That was one of our questions early on in the pandemic before really when we really didn't know how how well we were going to be able to manage um, the spread of COVID is is does this mean people just need to really stay in their house and not, not seek support from other people? So we can imagine that being a really big stressor. Um, and so just understanding when that kind of um, negative emotion or just experience of loneliness is the most impactful for both the care partner themselves and the person that they're caring for. I can see that being really helpful um, in terms of trying to pin that down because even like, for example, if, if uh, mornings you, you might feel like you're more resourceful, it, you know, it might depend on what time of morning. If it's first thing in bed, mm -hmm. you're dealing with conflict, you might go, I just want to crawl back in bed and forget <laughs> right. this, you know, and not, not right, absolutely. stay up. But if it, if it starts out a little bit normal and, you know, you kind of have your bearings set, um, I think that can make a, a big difference in and of itself. So, um, I, and I like that you're doing these short, um, timely um, questionnaires, you know, sometimes you go, oh, it's just short. And then it's like, oh, this is 15 minutes. This is 15 minutes I didn't have. But, you know, if they're just short, short and sweet and to the point, um, I think it's easier for people to get in a, a rhythm with that. Or even, you know, I, I get these stupid political things and it's it's like, two minutes just to fill out the beginning part of it. And it's just like, you mm -hmm. ask me this every time, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not, it is, yeah. and it's not having an impact. It's really gathering information. So I, I think people are sensitive to um, being quick and not having to have a block of time. Cause when you're, when you're caring, Absolutely. you just don't know when you're going to have that block. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and recall can get fuzzy. 
in terms of what happens mm-hmm. throughout the day. So, and, and that's exactly why it was so important to us. I just love what you're saying there. One, to not rely on your recall for the whole day or a whole week or anything like that, but really ask in this moment what you're feeling. And mm-hmm. then the second piece of that is it's if we want people to actually be able to respond to these surveys, then they have to be manageable. And so that was really a big piece for, for us was we know we're asking people who are already doing so much to do something extra. And so it needs to be very worth it, both financially and also just the time payoff. So I think that that uh, we really try to minimize the length of anything that we're sending. And we also listen to feedback from our participants when any piece of the study might feel overwhelming. And we always will revisit that as well. So we really want to incorporate and, and be responding to the feedback that we're getting from participants on, on the, the setup of the study. Well, and I would imagine in the in the setup when you're talking with people becoming part of this is you're relating to them. This is a safe space. So if you are ready to pull mm-hmm. your hair out and scream, it's okay to tell us that right now. Absolutely. Is, we, because we can't we can't build you resources and give you comfort if we don't really know the needs. So, you know, Absolutely. this needs to be a safe space um, for them to know um this is this is the way we push through and we find answers for you um, is through your authenticity and, and your mm-hmm. willingness to share because we know this isn't an easy road and um, and we know it's kind of like a roller coaster and so we expect to see that I would imagine is kind Absolutely. of what what you let people know up front because mm-hmm. I think people Definitely. sometimes are are scared. Um, you know, they hear horror stories of, oh, well, if somebody knows this, maybe they'll take my loved one from me. And, you know, I, I just had a bad day or a bad moment. Mm-hmm. And it's like, realistically, guys, we all have those if we're dealing with dementia. Or not. We have bad days. We have bad moments. And, and so this isn't a this isn't a facade you put up on, on Facebook or social media trying to pretend Absolutely. like your life is perfect. This is about being real so that, that the correct support services and resources can be developed to meet your needs or to connect you to those that already exist. Um, and, and I think that that is um, so important for people to understand. Who all is eligible to participate, and is there a, a cost to this at all? Yeah, so there aren't any major risks or benefits outside of compensation. So participants are compensated up to $255 for completing the study. Um, And then the other benefit, of course, is just benefit for future people in this position. And so we try to emphasize that as well. Um, In terms of who's eligible to participate, so anyone who's devoting about four hours or more a day to the care of a relative with Alzheimer's or a related dementia for at least the last three months would be eligible. So okay. it doesn't have to be just a spouse. It can be a family member, a, a daughter, a son um, who is involved in that caring. Mm-hmm. Can can more than one um, participant of a family partake in this study? I'm thinking, yes. so let's I say you have a spouse. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to say, if you have a spouse caring for, you know, a husband or wife, and then you might have mm-hmm. children that also step in. Um, I didn't know. Yeah. You know, because they're all coming from different angles and we all process things a little, a little bit differently there. 
Um, and I don't know if there's even a way that you would know that um, at all um, in terms of the data you collect on individuals. Or is that all yeah, private? I think as of now, we haven't had multiple people from the same um, family or care environment, but that's not um, by choice. So anyone could absolutely do that. And I, I also, so our study isn't designed to capture all of these pieces, but I do think that it's so important what you're saying in terms of the different experiences and perspectives that people have based on their relationship and age and, and just the context of that caring experience. So. Um, I would just encourage if there are multiple people in a family who would be interested in participating, um, compensation and things would go for both of you so, or multiple of you. So that's definitely a, a good option. And I, and I think that that uh, is just really valuable information. And I, and I hope we do more research like that in the future just to understand sort of the impact, again, on the family system I think is so fascinating. Yeah, it could it could be really interesting too if you broke it down into primary caregiver and secondary, um, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of what you're seeing. Um, and I know that studies mm -hmm. can't be changed in your layout and design of what you have, but I think it could be really really helpful um, for us to be able to develop things to help families better in their different roles and what they're frustrated with. Um, from helping them with communication to roles they take on and, and options mm -hmm. available and, and so forth there. Um, one, well, that's, that's very interesting. Um, with your lab, you know, you're, you're focusing on the caregiving research. Is that because you, you found there was a lack in terms of really studying uh, caregivers and care partners and their needs versus people um, living with the disease or? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I guess I have a two-pronged answer to that, which is that there's a, there are a couple of reasons why that are equally important, I think. So there is a lack of work overall compared to studying the experience of the patient. That being said, a lot of this really important work in the field of stress and health and understanding how psychological stress affects our health has come from this kind of research, looking at people who are caregiving for people with maybe terminal disease or dementia, just these different chronically stressful contexts. So that's, that kind of work has been so valuable to the field of health psychology overall. And I think that, again, that, that kind of emphasizes why we want to focus on this is, is that there is less about the caregiving experience and there's a lot to be learned because it is such a particularly stressful time for an extended period of time. So it gives us a lot of information that can, like you were saying earlier, that can be applied outside of the dementia caregiving context. Some of it may be more specific, but some things around just the experience of stress and, and of people reporting different levels of stress, even though they're in maybe similar situations, right? That kind of work can extend even beyond the experience of caregiving for a family member with Alzheimer's or dementia. So we really, it was just a perfect storm of, of this extension of bereavement research, wanting to understand what's happening for people before the experience of this loss. 
and wanting to really fill up the space of research with better work that is um, that capitalizes on the technology that we have now. So that's a central part of the study as well, is, is like we were talking about earlier, just the multiple short questionnaires throughout the day versus asking about general, uh, like a general recall for an extended period of time. So we felt like we had a lot to add um, in the technology realm, as well as to just complement the the research that's already out there around the experience of dementia patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you, you know, in the opening I had said that you were looking at kind of disruptions to the immune system and the endocrine yeah. and automatic. Can you tell people, like, maybe give them some specific examples of those three things and, and what could be considered disruption? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I'll go back to the example of of bereavement because that's what our lab has really focused on. And and if I can give you some really clean examples there, which is that, so we see that there are differences between people who have recently lost a spouse. So in the last two or three months compared to matched controls who look very similar to these um, bereaved individuals. So in terms of age, sex, and body mass index, which are important for when we're doing um, different immune markers. And so for this kind of work, when we're looking at immune markers, we're looking at inflammation. So we might be looking at inflammation that's just floating around in your body, and we also might be looking at inflammation in response to a specific kind of stressor. And so that is important because inflammation is a really good predictor of future cardiovascular risk. And that's what chronic stress most clearly puts us at risk for is future cardiovascular events. So we're understanding now that bereaved individuals do have higher levels of inflammation just floating around in their bodies and and in response to specific stress compared to these control participants. So you have this context where there's a major life event and you have inflammation elevated. And so we want to understand how long that inflammation remains elevated for. But we also want to understand within this group of people who are more stressed, so thinking of just the bereaved group, so they've just experienced the death of a spouse. And we want to understand if something like how, how strongly they're grieving is affecting inflammation. And we did end up showing that people who were reporting higher grief symptom severity had higher inflammation than people who were reporting lower grief symptom severity. So showing that there's a difference in immune system function between people who have lost a spouse versus not. And then even within the group of people who have lost a spouse, there is a difference in inflammation based on how, how distressing that loss has been to them. So that's mm-hmm. an example on how we would look at those sorts of things for immune parameters. And for more autonomic nervous system, more of like heart function kinds of things, we often look at heart rate variability as this marker of overall sort of self-regulation and, again, related to cardiovascular system function. So we do that kind of work in our lab. And then for endocrine system markers, we'll look at things like cortisol. So how does your cortisol stress response 
fluctuate throughout the day. And so those are the kinds of um, biological markers that we most commonly look at in our lab to understand how chronic stress can affect us in multiple biological systems. Okay. So question for you. So along with the questions, then, do they have to go into their doctor for blood tests and things to, to get this information, or how is that calculated with the inflammation and yeah. cortisol? And- That's a great question. So for project care specifically, because we're um, doing it completely remotely, the only biological markers that we're using are the um, autonomic, so heart rate variability. So For this study specifically, there's no blood draw required or anything like that. So the only thing that a participant in this kind of a study would be doing is wearing a, actually wearing a Fitbit. So we will send a Fitbit that will track your heart rate and sleep and heart rate variability. And so that process is is really simple. So you just, we just get you set up. Uh, We get to talk and meet everyone on Zoom. And then we just make sure they're all set up for the study. And then we're able to get that information just from them wearing a Fitbit. Okay. Well, that would be, do you look at, like, their their answers to their questions in terms of the timing of their of the Fitbits to see if when they were really, let's say, um, exasperated or, or extremely tired, yeah. if that lines up with what you're seeing from the Fitbit information? That's definitely part of the plan for analysis. That's what we're really, really looking forward to. And that, I think, is what's going to be the key part of understanding sort of when is it worth intervening. And I think that's also another just sort of more philosophical question is, is the point of intervention when someone is saying, I'm distressed. Or is it the point when when you're seeing that distress manifested in the body? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that that's that's a whole another can of worms. But but understanding sort of the time course here from when someone's saying that they are distressed to when it's showing up in in these physiological markers is definitely something we're excited to keep doing. Okay, sounds good. So then the Fitbit I would imagine is mailed to them. Do they return that when the study mm-hmm. is over? Um, back yeah, to you or yeah. okay okay mm-hmm. sounds good and, and then provide um, a return label and everything like that so it's super easy you can just drop it off at a post office okay okay um so so let's review again what participating in the study all entails again and you had mentioned mm-hmm. that um anybody is eligible who cares for somebody with dementia um four plus hours a day um, in the last three months, and that mm-hmm. multiple people in the family are welcome. So you could have a spouse and you could have children involved. Um, there's no cost to them to partake in this, and there could be compensation up to $255. Um, they mm-hmm. would be emailed this, or not emailed, they would be mailed a Fitbit um, to kind mm-hmm. of monitor their, their heart and things like that. And um, and then there's a questionnaire that comes out multiple times a day that is just like a short one-minute um, questionnaire mm-hmm. that can be tailored to either email or text. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else that I'm that I'm missing on that? No, that I mean that was a great summary. So we, in addition to those sort of short one-minute questionnaires at a different time, um, sort of before and after this week where you would be getting those um, sort of one-minute 
respond, uh, surveys to respond to. We also have a, a sort of more of a demographics type survey that's a little bit longer, but again, we offer as much flexibility as possible. So we send it to you and then you have um, a full day or two to answer those questions whenever it's the most convenient for you. So you can pull it up on your email, um, just click the link, and then you can start and stop and just finish it whenever it's the most convenient for you because we know there's lots of interruptions and things like that that mm-hmm. can happen. Well, and that's important that you have that start and stop where you can go back in instead of having to re-go in and start all over again. Exactly. That's so, exactly. so frustrating. Um, <laughs> the people at large, Absolutely. and you add add that caring role on top of it, and you're just like, hey, I'm out of here. I can't do this. It's too, you know, oh, it's just totally. gets too much. So I am very understandably. Glad to hear that. Um, how long has the study been going on for, and how long do you expect it to, to run? Great question. I believe we got funded for it in about August of last year and started working with participants around November of last year. And we expect to go through probably January or February of the upcoming year. So we're recruiting 100 participants total in the study, and we're about halfway through with that number at this point. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a nice way to, you know, um, help others out in the future by participating, get a little extra Christmas money for that two fifty five, and mm-hmm. um, know that you're not alone in terms of the journey that you're on. I think that is that is so key. You know, we can't we can't fix something if we don't know how it's broken, and and what you really need for support. And so honesty is is so. Um, so, so important. And I love that you've made this, you know, really virtual so it's easy for people to participate in. I, I have heard great comments about the kind of the, the twists and turns in being more flexible in terms of how people can participate and um, mm-hmm. in studies because some people it's just too much for them to go to the doctor and get physical testing done and yet you're pulling great information. Absolutely. Out of this, once you have um, closed the study and you know compile all your your data, will that be um, will that be shared with uh, people who were in the study themselves? Yeah. So in the lab, we always ask our participants if they're interested in in hearing about the results of the study. So usually, when a paper will be published from one of the main studies in our lab, we'll either share that study, but a lot of times it's just it's a lot nicer just to write up a little blurb and send that out with it. So, you know, you can you can look at the whole study if you want to, but you can also just see the little blurb of exactly what we found without all of the all the jargon. So mm-hmm. I think that that's a really nice way to keep um, participants involved and also updated on, on the findings. Exactly, exactly. Because not not everybody has time or, you know, needs to see all the footer notes and things like that exactly. when, when they're in this process. So we know it's important to your research paper as a whole. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate your time with us. Is there anything that um, I, I should have asked that I didn't um, that we need to cover? Not to my knowledge. I just wanted to thank you too for the, just for this these spaces. Um, again, I, I I just see so much value in in building these communities around these experiences that can be so isolating and 
feel like you're alone in it. And so I think it's, it just, it warms my heart to see the work that you're doing and, and, and through this study, just being able to see the work that different groups are doing to try to build more of a community around this experience. And so I hope that, you know, I hope that our study can help to contribute to that, but regardless, I'm just really grateful for you and everyone else who's doing this kind of work to help support um, family caregivers. Yeah, there's a, there's way more support out there than people think. And so, again, I would encourage you to go to mm-hmm. the Dementia Map. Um, and just even under the Activities uh, tab, you're going to find so many different ways to to connect. If it's through memory cafes, if it is through, like, Music Men's Minds or Saltbox TV and Zinnia TV or Maria's Place. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. There are a lot of ways to be able to find joy and lighten the load and just make you, you know, let you breathe easier. I won't say make it because that just sounds like a forced thing, too. So one more thing. <laughs> breathe easier, I tell you. Breathe easier. Yeah. You know? It's not, not always so easy to do. But um, I know for myself, I found once I, and you have to take this role seriously, but once I was able to let go of the actual control that I, you know, that I was really trying to fix the disease. And I, I don't have the power to fix the disease. I have the power to change how I react to it and what I look for when disease knocks on my door or a family or a friend or loved one's door in terms of how I'm going to react. Once I realized that, um, that that really lessened the burden of, mm-hmm. of being perfect and feeling the pressure, which I think... Uh, you know, ticks off so many things that you guys are trying to evaluate with heart rate and inflammation. Mm-hmm. And I, I know when I was caring for my mom with dementia, my dad, um, who had brain cancer, all of a sudden, you know, I, I had health issues that I didn't have before. I had a little anxiety. I had um, acid mm-hmm. reflux. I was, uh, I had um, some asthma. And then, you know, when I was done with the, the journey of those, uh, of dealing with the stress of both of those, they all dissipated. And I was kind of flabbergasted. And I was lucky that they were minor because so many people Mm -hmm. go through very, very serious health issues. And it's well known that many care partners will end up passing first because of these stress Mm -hmm. levels. And so it is critical to get involved, you know, with a study um, like Project Care so that we can, we can help others, um, and uh, ease ease this process and and um, really get them back into relationship and lessen the burden and and have them Absolutely. feel supported. So and um, I, and what I'm hearing there, I just I sorry, I just I I just had to say that I think that another place that I, I've just seen with a lot of participants and in the study and also our bereavement study is just just the guilt um, around either the time during or the time after a, a loss and and so I think that that that's another piece that it's just so helpful to have a community to say like you're not alone in this and you did the best you can or you're doing the best you can you did the best you could um, and and just acknowledging that there are so many complicated feelings around these experiences when they're especially when they're just wrapped up with people who we really care and love so much um, so, so just again, appreciating, appreciating the community there because I, I just don't, I just hope that people 
can at least reduce a little bit of any like guilt that they feel around any of these time periods and you know just the feeling of like wishing you were better um when when you're already doing so much yeah and i'll just throw in too i mean not everybody has rosy relationships with who they're caring for Mm -hmm. so you know i've run across a lot of people who have had very dysfunctional families um they Mm -hmm. have disconnected and now they're all of a sudden no i have to care for this person who didn't care for me very well as a child i mean there's a lot of that and and know that that is understood um and appreciated as well and so not not everybody is always coming from a loving place and even though you might have a a great relationship and very loving there's going to be moments where your thoughts aren't going to be all that sweet and again it's understandable that's one of the points of the study is how do we reduce Mm -hmm. those moments for you um Mm -hmm. so i would really encourage you to to um get involved with project care and you can go ahead and email ryan at care during covid at rice.edu that's care during covid at rice edu and you can go to uh, ryan's website that's ryan and then lynn l-i-n-n brown.com ryanlynnbrown.com she's also on twitter at ryan's that's plural science ryan's science Um, again thank you so much ryan for being with us i wish you the best of luck and i'd love to have you back on and talk about the results when you're yeah absolutely okay that sounds great that sounds great thank you so much thank you And to our listeners, I hope that you like, click, and share this episode. You know, we'd love to see uh, this uh, this study get uh, filled up. They need it. Sounded like about 50 more people. This is nationwide. Again, there is no cost, and there's an opportunity to make up to $255 in compensation. You just uh, to be eligible, you have to care for somebody at least four hours a day within the last three months. And um, multiple family members are welcome. So maybe there's a spouse taking uh, care of another spouse um, along with adult children that are helping out uh, or could even be a a neighbor or a friend. Uh, But it just has to be that four-hour requirement. They'll send you out a Fitbit to help uh, get some of your your, um, basic uh, health information, um, like, you know, how are you sleeping and uh, blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. And um, and then you'll be asked some questions, uh, just short questions, um, about a minute of your time, along with uh, uh, at least one um, more specific one that will be emailed to you that'll take a little bit longer. But again, you can do it in bits and pieces, you know, over a couple of days as well. So again, go to uh, go ahead and email care during COVID at rice. Uh, .edu. And if you're looking for more information on Alzheimer's Speaks, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. We'd love to talk to you. Maybe you could be our next guest. You might have some ideas of what we should have on for the show. Maybe you maybe you don't want to be on, but maybe you know someone who should be. Um, please reach out. We are um, always looking for people all around the world at all ages and stages. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you again on Thursday. Bye now.
Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.